Holy Father in heaven, we approach you today knowing that life is short. Life is short and eternity is a very, very long time. And we thank you, Lord, that you have sent your son to rescue us from sin and death and to secure for us eternal life, an eternal weight of glory, something that nothing in this world is worth comparing to. Father, I thank you that for many of us here today, you've opened our eyes to the glory of Christ, to see that nothing on earth compares with the greatness of knowing him, that everything else is like rubbish. And Lord, many of us have turned our backs on the world and on ourselves, and we have responded to your call to take up our cross and follow you. Lord, I pray that for those of us who have made this decision to repent of our sin and, and trust Christ and follow him, I pray that today you would strengthen our resolve, that the words we just sang would be true for us, and that we would look to the finish line with eyes of faith. And Lord, for those among us this morning who may be questioning whether it's really worth it to turn their back on the world and surrender themselves to you fully, I pray that they would see the glory and the beauty of salvation today, that they would understand what it means to belong to you. So Lord, stir our hearts and our affections for Christ this morning, and as we open your word, I pray that you would direct us into your will. We pray that you would do this by your spirit and for your glory. Amen. Please open this morning to Exodus chapter 22. If you're new with us this morning and visiting, we've been walking through the book of Exodus for some months, I think it might be a year now, I'm not sure. I don't remember. It's probably pretty close to a year. And many of you are familiar with probably the first half of Exodus. We know the stories about the plagues in Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea and the amazing deliverance that God provided for his people. But sometimes people forget that there's a whole second half to the book of Exodus. After they cross the Red Sea, God leads them to Mount Sinai. And there he enters into a covenant with them and gives them his law. And it's this second half of Exodus that we're in this morning. And just by way of introduction, um, I, I want to make a very simple observation on life that I think connects to the text this morning. And you guys know this from practical experience, but what something is for, an item, you know, whatever it may be, what something is for is very, very important it's very important to understanding how it should be used. For example, I have this old pair of running shoes. They're at least 10 years old. And at one point, they were gray and red and white. Now they're this beautiful shade of greenish brown. And that's because I wear those shoes when I weed eat, when I mow, when I coach baseball, when I go fishing. They're my junk shoes. That's what they're for. And that dictates how it is that I use them. I didn't wear them this morning, even though most of you guys wouldn't care. But those aren't the shoes I wore to church. Those aren't the shoes I wear to a wedding or to a funeral. Because I know what they're for. What something is for is important. And so to bring that to Exodus, I want you to think about this. What is Israel for? What is their purpose? Why did God bring Israel out of slavery? Why did God gather them at Mount Sinai? Well, just to refresh your memory, over and over again in the early chapters of Exodus, we often heard this refrain from the lips of Moses. He would tell Pharaoh, let my people go, speaking on behalf of God here, that they may serve me. That's what Israel was for. 
That's why God called them out of slavery and rescued them, so that they would serve him. Pharaoh was their old master. Yahweh, this God of the covenant, the God of promise, he was their new master. And their relationship with their redeemer is being formalized into a covenant. It's being made official here at Mount Sinai. And if these people are going to serve God and fulfill his plans for them, it becomes imperative that they understand exactly what it is that they're being called to, that they know what their purpose is, that they know what what their identity is as this redeemed nation. A few pages back in Exodus chapter 19, it says this in verse 5. God speaks to the people who had gathered there at the foot of Mount Sinai as there's earthquake and, and flashes of lightning and thunder. God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what they were being called to. That's what God had saved them for. To serve God, to worship him meant that they were this treasured people, that they were to be a kingdom of priests, that they were to be a holy nation. Israel responded affirmatively to this invitation. In verse 8 of chapter 19, they answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They said, Yes, we understand what it is, God, that you're calling us to, and we'll sign up for that. We agree to that. Everything that you command, that is what we will do. This is their statement of devotion to their God. God had said, I will be your God. And they're saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, we will be your people. God had laid out his covenant purposes for them, and they embraced it. So that brings up the question, what does it look like to be devoted to God? What will it look like for them to be a holy nation? Well, that's one of the reasons God gives them his law. That's why the Ten Commandments are laid out. That's why all these statutory laws come after the Ten Commandments, showing them how these eternal principles should be applied in their society so that they might be this holy nation that God intended them to be. What we'll learn in our passage today is that devotion to God, if they were going to be this holy people, devotion to God will mean being different from the world. Devotion to God means being different from the world. And they were to be different in four key ways. And that will be our text this morning. Chapter 22, we'll be looking at a collection of laws ranging from verse 16 all the way through verse 9 of the next chapter, chapter 23. Devotion to God means being different from the world. And I've sort of categorized these under four headings. It's going to require being different from the world, being devoted to God, will require, number one, purity. Number two, mercy. Third, submission, and fourth, integrity. I'd like to walk through those this morning. And we can learn some things for ourselves, what it looks like to be different from the world and devoted to God. Number one, in verses 16 through 20, here in chapter 22, we discover that God's people are to be uniquely pure. They're to be uniquely pure. If they're going to be devoted from God, to God and to be different from the world, they must be pure. Verses 16 through 20 deals with both sexual purity and spiritual purity. It pairs them together because both are essential. Verses 16 through 17 deals with immorality. It says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, 
He shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. If I could just back up for a minute and remind you of the Ten Commandments. The Seventh Commandment made clear that sexual intimacy is reserved for the covenant of marriage. That's what the prohibition of adultery means. Anything outside of that deviates from God's design and is a violation of his will. It's a little confusing maybe for us because we're so far removed from this historical context. We see words like bride price and betrothal, but let me just give a brief word of explanation here. Requiring a bride price in this sort of circumstance and then, and then requiring the man to marry the woman what it was intended to do was to ensure that men were not allowed to seek the benefits of marriage while avoiding the obligations. That's the point of this law. And really, that's what premarital sex does. It takes the blessings of marriage selfishly, removes it from the marriage covenant, but doesn't make the commitment. Does not engage at the level of a lifelong covenantal commitment to that person. It doesn't commit to the long-term provision and love and care that marriage requires. Premarital sex is all about the moment with no commitment for the future. So it's selfish and it robs the sexual act of the relational significance it's supposed to have as a, a feature of the marriage covenant. So even though premarital sex may be consensual from a human perspective, and we see that it's consensual in this situation that the law describes, it's still sin. It's sin because God doesn't consent to it. And that's the consent that ultimately matters. It is God's approval that matters. And so we see here this, this law, this commandment related to sexual purity. That if they are to be devoted to God, it means that, that sexual intimacy must be reserved for the marriage covenant. Now, the whole language about the bride price might strike you as strange, but I want you to understand that this is not meant to place a monetary value on the woman, as if she is merely property. That's not what's going on here. Rather, this bride price is meant to protect her and to provide for her. And in ancient cultures, the bride price was really made as an investment in her future. It was sort of like a fallback or a nest egg for her, that if her husband died or if he were to sinfully abandon her for some reason, that there was something there for her in her old age to meet her needs, to care for her. But there's also another layer of protection here for her, that if a situation, an, an unfortunate situation like this happened, and the man was somehow not suitable for marriage, if marriage would have made it worse rather than making it better, then her father is able to veto the marriage. And again, this is for her protection. So uh, it's easy for us to read some of these laws and read them through a 21st century lens and wrongly understand what's going on here. But the simple point is this. Premarital sexual sin was not to be tolerated. Women were be to pr protected. And marriage was to be honored. That's what was going on. Purity in this realm was the expectation for God's people. To be devoted to God meant they must be pure. There's a, another aspect of purity that's dealt with in verse 18. It says, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. And this might strike you as coming out of left field, but I think the connection here still is this idea of purity. Now, you may think of sorcery as something that's sort of reserved for the realm of fantasy literature or some of these myths and stories we may enjoy. 
Harry Potter, wizards, things like that. But the reality is that there is a spiritual dimension to the world we live in. There is a spiritual realm. And we, as human beings, are made for relationship, for the ability to connect with a spiritual being. God is spirit, and we're made for relationship with him. But Satan counterfeits that spiritual connection. Satan offers a different way to experience this spiritual connection and offers power and control and knowledge as an alluring temptation. And some people are drawn to this. They want to tap into it. But just like sexual sin, sorcery, this engaging with the spiritual realm, trying to wield this spiritual power that is not of God, just like sexual sin, sorcery is illegitimate. It is forbidden because it seeks something that is good, a spiritual connection, this transcendent experience, but it seeks it outside the proper bounds. It looks for it not from God, but in other places. It's a counterfeit power, and it's a dangerous sin. And it is, in fact, as we see, one that was punishable by death in Old Testament Israel because it was considered spiritual adultery. If they were to be devoted to God, they must be pure, Spiritually pure. Then the law sort of switches back to physical purity once again in verse 19. It says, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. This is another transgression of proper boundaries. God made man unique. He made mankind in his own image. And to lie with an animal was to debase the image of God. And this wickedness was also punishable by death. This sort of corruption, this sort of depravity, was not to be tolerated in Israel. They were supposed to be what? A holy nation. And such behavior was not to be allowed. But I think this is likely about much more than just some sort of warped personal desires. There is also a spiritual element here. The worship of pagan deities, these false gods, it often included horrid acts like child sacrifice and ritual prostitution, mutilation, And even, yes, the revolting sin that is mentioned here in verse 19. This was a feature of pagan worship. So again, physical and spiritual purity is what God desires from a holy people. He jumps back to the spiritual purity emphasis in verse 20. Verse 20 says, Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Again, let me remind you that these laws that we're walking through in the book of the covenant, this is the application of the Ten Commandments, showing what it looks like to apply those Ten Commandments in daily life. And remember the first and second commandment. They were to have no other gods before him. They were to worship God exclusively. And they were to not make any graven images. They were to worship God in the way that he desired, in the way that he gave them instruction to worship. And so ignoring those commandments and introducing pagan worship into the community, this is forbidden. Pagan worship brings corruption to the whole society. It would usher in immorality and spiritual darkness to the people of God. And it would lead ultimately to their ruin. So for the sake of the community as a whole, and for the sake of the honor and glory of their God, this sort of dangerous spiritual impurity was to be eradicated. Eradicated. 
Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Notice there in verse 20, it says, the Lord alone. This is the covenant name of God. When you see all the capital letters there, L-O-R-D, that's referring to the Hebrew name, Yahweh, his covenant name. And it's tied directly to their relationship with him. They are to worship him exclusively, faithfully. So all of this teaching on purity, both sexual purity and spiritual purity, is tied to their covenant relationship with God. They are his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And this means they must be pure. They must be holy, both physically and spiritually. And this sort of sexual and spiritual purity, it would have made them, get this, radically different than the world around them. This would have set them apart a very different way of life than all of the pagan nations that surrounded them. Their neighbors dabbled in sorcery. Their neighbors were immersed in idolatry. Their neighbors were involved in unspeakable perversions. But Israel is called to be holy. They are saved to serve God. And God wants pure worship and pure worshipers. Devotion to God requires that they be uniquely pure But secondly, God's people are also to be uniquely merciful. They're to be uniquely merciful. The way they treat people is to be different than the way other nations treated the vulnerable among them. There's always going to be people in every society who find themselves in vulnerable situations because of various circumstances. And there's four different types of vulnerable people that are mentioned here in this text. And the emphasis is on showing mercy to them not taking advantage or exploiting them. The first we see in verse 21, it's the sojourner. It says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. A sojourner is someone who's traveling. They're far from home. They're an outsider. They have no social connections in your community. And they are therefore dependent, especially in that day, dependent on the hospitality of the people who live there. So these people were vulnerable to some who might take advantage of them because a sojourner would have no family to take up their cause. They would have no connections to the local authorities. There'd be no loyalties. They're sort of on an island. And if they were to disappear, if they were to be taken advantage of, there's no one that would have their back. But the Israelites were to be merciful to such people in large part because of their own experience. That's what it says, verse 21. It says, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. They had once been far from home, in a distant place, completely at the mercy of their hosts, dependent on their hospitality. Remember, centuries before this, Jacob's family had migrated to Egypt because of a great famine. And the reason they survived was because of God's providential direction, sending Joseph ahead of them, so that the Pharaoh would meet their needs provide food and grazing and land for them. Although later the Egyptians did turn on them and enslave them, at the beginning they had been welcomed and cared for. And so because Israel had received that kind of mercy and compassion, they're supposed to show the same. Rather than be cruel, they're to be compassionate. There's a second type of vulnerable person mentioned in verses 22 through 24. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child if you do mistreat them. 
and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Obviously, families with no father in that day and age had no protector and no provider. Women in that society lacked the legal status and the income-earning ability of a man. So widows were vulnerable, vulnerable to having their family's land swindled away. They were often victims of unfair negotiations. It was not uncommon for their children to be forced to work for inadequate pay because they had no other options for survival. But Israel is called to be merciful towards such people, not to exploit them, not to take advantage of them. And this comes with a severe warning. God says, you might get away with it in human society, but I see it and I will deal with it. He makes mention of the sword and an ironic turn of justice that plunges wicked people into the same exact situation. He says, I will make your wives widows and your children fatherless. If you mistreat them, they may have no husband or father, earthly speaking, who cares for them. But there's a God in heaven who sees and who is very just. So they're given warning there. A third type of vulnerable person is mentioned in verse 25. It's the poor. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. People who fall on hard times, and some of us have been there, you're forced to take advantage of whatever option you have. Anything you can grab onto to keep from sinking, you'll reach out and grab onto because you have no other options. Well, when someone in the community of Israel fell on hard times and they asked for a loan, if they needed a helping hand, Israel was commanded to offer them real help to actually help them, to give honest loans, not charging them interest. They're not supposed to be predatory and try to make a profit off of someone else's hardship. Lending a helping hand was to be a genuine expression of mercy, not just some sort of opportunistic offer. Sure, I'll help you out, but there's a catch. And I'm going to keep you under the thumb of this exorbitant interest rate. They weren't supposed to treat poor people like that. Give real help. Don't take advantage of them. This help is also in view when he mentions a fourth type of vulnerable person, the indebted neighbor, verse 26 and 27. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, this is referring to collateral for a loan or for something borrowed, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. When the only thing a person had for collateral was something that was a necessity for life, like a cloak, literally what they would use to keep warm at night, if you were to knowingly deprive them of something they needed, that was cruel. That was cruel. The basis for this command is once again the character of God. He says, for I am compassionate verse 27. They are God's people. They've been redeemed for God's glory. They've been set apart for God's purposes. So they're supposed to reflect God's character and to be compassionate as he is, not to be cruel and deprive something of some, someone of something that they need. Even if they had a legal right to hold on to that collateral, 
They're supposed to be the kind of people who are generous, who are merciful, who make concessions to meet real needs. Kindness and not cruelty is to be the the defining mark of the people of God. They're supposed to be compassionate, not cold-hearted. So in a world where people instinctively seek their own interests, in a world where competition is the norm and a desire for personal advancement is what dominates, showing mercy, showing compassion, showing kindness to people who have nothing to offer you, that will mark you as very different from the world. That's different than the world. And that's what Israel is supposed to be, set apart, holy to their God, reflecting his compassion and mercy, different than the world. Devotion to God means we must be different than the world, showing a unique kind of mercy to those in need. There's a third mark, a third way in which God's people are to be different. In verse 28 through 31, God's people are to be uniquely submitted to God. Uniquely submitted to God. They're supposed to be pure, merciful, and then uniquely submitted to God. There's three commands here that highlight our relationship to God and the way we respond to his authority. There's two categories in the universe, God and everything else, and God gets all the authority. Any authority that that man may possess is a delegated authority, and we see that sort of laid out in the text here. Look in verse 28. It says, first of all, you shall not revile God or curse a ruler of your people. Let's look at the first command. You shall not revile God. This is to express anger or disdain or hatred or disrespect in any way towards God. God is the one who had redeemed them. If it wasn't for God, they'd still be suffering as slaves in Egypt. God is the one who rescued them. If it wasn't for God, they would have been pinned against the shores of the Dead Sea, recaptured by Pharaoh and his army. God was the one who provided for their needs in the wilderness, giving bread from heaven, giving water from the rock, turning bitter water into sweet. If it wasn't for God, they would have thirsted and starved to death in the wilderness. God was the one who'd revealed himself to them at Mount Sinai. If it wasn't for God's self-revelation, they would not know his name. They would not know his promises. They would not know his will and his purposes for them. And God was the one they had promised to serve. They had promised to obey him. They had said, everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So in light of all that, to revile God would have been blasphemous. Unthinkable, because it would have been a repudiation of their covenant relationship with their God. And a kingdom of priests is supposed to worship their God, not despise him. They're supposed to bless his name, not blaspheme him. So the law says, you shall not revile God. But they're also commanded not to curse any human ruler. If you remember, the fifth commandment tells us to honor father and mother. And the reason for that is because any authority that God institutes is to be shown respect. And all authority ultimately comes from God. He sovereignly assigns it to whom he wills. There's authority at the level of the state. There's authority within the church. There's authority within the home. And God is the one who defines it and delegates it. So our response to human authority really reflects our attitude towards God. And that's why they're not supposed to to curse any human ruler. 
So if they're going to be sub- submitted to God, it means that they recognize his authority, no reviling, no cursing, whether it be God himself or lesser human authorities. But they're also supposed to be submitted to God in their worship and obedience. Look at verse 29 and 30. It says, You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons, you shall give it to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. We honor God's authority. We rightly relate to him in submission to him in the way that we worship and obey, in the way that we give, in the way that we surrender what we own, acknowledging that he ultimately owns all of it. Worship and obedience are tied together for Israel in this first fruits offering. Each Hebrew firstborn was to be consecrated to God. The firstborn males of their flocks and herds and also the first fruits of the harvest. And this act of worship acknowledged God's ownership. It acknowledged him as their authority and their God, that they belonged to him. It's kind of funny, in verse 31 we see a third um, instruction which might sound kind of strange um, maybe if you grew up in the city. Um, I, have some, I have some friends who have picked up roadkill before, so we can, we can refer to this as the roadkill rules in verse 31. It says, You shall be consecrated to me, therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You might say, what does this have to do with anything? What's the big deal about salvaging a little bit of meat? Everybody likes jerky, Right? And almost any meat can become jerky. So some of you guys are grossing out. I'll stop. So while I'm sure that there are sanitary benefits for not eating an animal that's been killed by another animal, you know, finding a dead animal, this is primarily about holiness, not health. This is about holiness. Notice how he starts verse 31. You shall be consecrated to me, therefore you shall not eat this kind of meat. They are consecrated to God. This is priestly language. They've been set apart and given a unique status. They're supposed to be a kingdom of priests, which means they must be holy. So this is about cleanliness, not in a sanitary sense, but in in a religious, like cultic sense. They're supposed to be holy and set apart. A, A torn animal was unclean because it had been killed by an unclean animal. And because the blood was still in it, they weren't supposed to eat the blood. And because they're supposed to be the set-apart priestly nation, they were to abstain from eating this kind of meat. Here's the principle. In situations like this, their obligation to God, as those who are consecrated, is more important than whatever opportunity lay in front of them. Even the opportunity to salvage some meat, to put some food on the table for their kids, to save some money. Their obligation to God was higher than all of those other lesser priorities. They were consecrated to him. So in each of these cases, not reviling or cursing, um, faithful worship and obedience, abstaining from certain kinds of meat, this is all about their relationship to God and their submission to him, understanding who they are in light of their relationship to God. So being devoted to God means being different from the world. They're supposed to be pure, merciful, and fully submitted to him. And then, finally, they are also supposed to be 
or demonstrate a unique kind of integrity. That's the word I've used to summarize the last nine verses of our text this morning. God's people are to show unique integrity. This is a a bit of a stretch, a longer text. We'll move through it quickly. Eight insights into what it means to have integrity. Number one, integrity, integrity requires speaking the truth. Look in verse one of chapter 23. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Integrity requires speaking the truth. When we twist the truth to accomplish our goals, when we spread a false report, when we join hands with someone else to try to get something done, thinking that the means justifies the ends, Scripture condemns this as wicked. It's wicked. The ninth commandment tells us not to bear false witness against our neighbor. And here it's being repeated for emphasis. Spreading a false report, playing the part of a malicious witness, someone who falsifies the truth in order to sabotage another person, in order to break up that couple because you want to date one of them, in order to step on your coworker so you can get the promotion, in order to get someone in hot water with the law so that you can get the satisfaction of personal revenge. Twisting the truth, spreading a false report in order to prop up one political candidate and somehow demote another. The Bible condemns all of it. All of it. Integrity requires speaking the truth. Refusing to participate in any sort of scheme like this. Secondly, integrity is refusing to follow the crowd When the crowd is wrong, look in verse 2. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Integrity means you're willing to swim upstream, that you don't always follow the crowd. I think there's two reasons people may follow the crowd. One is peer pressure. When everyone in the room is trying to get you to do something, it can be hard not to. There's a second reason people may go along with the crowd, and that's just because there's an opportunity and you can get away with it. When you have an opportunity to do something that will benefit yourself and nobody else is going to hold you accountable because they're all doing the same thing, it's very easy to follow the crowd, to fall in with the many, as it says here, to do evil, to bear witness in a lawsuit, perhaps, siding with the many, the majority, in order to pervert justice. That may be common. But biblically, it is wrong. Integrity is refusing to follow the crowd when the crowd is doing something that is wrong. Third, integrity means being impartial. Look in verse 3. This might surprise some of you. It says, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. You say, wait a second. Aren't we supposed to favor the poor? Aren't we supposed to always want to help the little guy? And don't we kind of like sticking it to the man? And the rich guy can afford it anyway. What's it going to hurt? Well, biblically speaking, integrity means we are loyal to the truth and that we are impartial. Impartial. It's easy to feel justified in sympathizing with the little guy. And you may think that, well, the rich can afford it and the poor need a break. And some people will use this sort of thinking to justify partiality. But God's people are to be committed to truth and to justice, nothing less, no matter what the results may be. Skewing justice in favor of the poor, it sounds like being sympathetic, 
But the Bible says it is sinful. Fourth, integrity means doing the right thing even when you don't want to. Look in verses 4 and 5, chapter 23. It says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Even though you're tempted to take pictures and post it online and laugh, right? If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. We're not supposed to laugh at our enemies when something bad happens. We're supposed to help them. Integrity is doing the right thing even when you don't want to. Verse 5 says, If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. We're supposed to help those that we have a problem with. That's our enemy. And we're even supposed to help those who have a problem with us, the ones who hate us. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard it said that you know, you're to hate your enemy. He says, but I tell you, you're supposed to love your enemy. Do good to those who hate you. you know, there's a, a manner of thinking that says, yeah, I, I scratch the back of those who scratch mine. But my enemy, we're at war, so I'm not going to help him. But the command to love our enemies is something that's not just a New Testament principle. It's actually right here in the law. And Jesus knows that people hadn't read very carefully. And they hadn't applied very faithfully the truths that are right here in the Old Testament law, that we are to love our enemies. Integrity means doing the right thing. For instance, like loving our enemies, even when we don't want to. Fifth, integrity is not taking advantage of the weak. It's a little bit of repetition from what we've seen earlier, but look in verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Don't take advantage of people just because you can get away with it. The poor are those who often can't hire the good lawyers. They're those who maybe don't have all of the education and, and the knowledge to know how to navigate you know, certain things like this, the criminal justice system. Um, but we're not supposed to take advantage of people like that. Some people are tempted to skew justice to favor the poor, but there's always going to be some who are tempted to take advantage of the poor and use the justice system to deny them their rights. But integrity means not taking advantage of the weak, even if it costs us, even if you miss out on an opportunity to gain something. The poor are to be given justice. Sixth, integrity is refusing to participate in injustice. Look in verse 7. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. God gives a warning here very similar to what we find in Proverbs. Proverbs 17, 15, which we've quoted many times in the past year. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. True justice refuses to condemn the righteous for something they're not guilty of. Seventh, integrity means refusing to be bought. It means you can't be bought. Verse 8 deals with bribes. And you shall take no bribe. That's a payment to get you to say something or do something. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Bribery is to be rejected outright. Don't put a price tag on your integrity. There's a saying that everybody has a price, just a matter of what the dollar amount is. But for those who fear God and who want to be truly different than the world, who desire to be uniquely devoted to God and be what he has called us to be, that means that we must not be the kind of people who can be bought. Reject 
a bribe. No matter what we may stand to gain, no matter what it may cost us, God's people are to walk with integrity. And then finally, integrity means rejecting hypocrisy. Look in verse 9. Again, we see language about the sojourner. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. When he says, you know the heart of a sojourner, he's saying, listen, you know how it feels. You know what it feels like. Don't forget that. Because a long time ago, when you were the ones who were sojourners, when you were the ones at the mercy of your hosts, you thought it was really important to show mercy and to help people out. But now that the shoe is on the other foot, how are you going to handle it? To turn around for them and to oppress a sojourner would have been hypocritical, flat out hypocritical. Integrity means that our values don't change when our circumstances change. That's what it means. There's certain times where, oh, this truth is very important to me, but then later on down the road, circumstances change and all of a sudden my values change. No, that's hypocrisy. The way they treated sojourners was to be consistent. They were to reject hypocrisy. The ethics of the world change based on the circumstances. The world says stealing is wrong unless it's from the rich. The world says murder is wrong unless the baby is unwanted, and then it's okay. The world says truth is objective until it's not. Or science is authoritative except for when it speaks about gender and what it means to be a man or a woman. The world says politicians must be held accountable for lying unless it's the guy I voted for. Then he gets a pass. The world says slander is wrong. You shouldn't say such things unless it's against my enemy and someone that we all agree should be dunked on. But listen, God's people are to be different. We're to show a unique kind of integrity. For Israel, despite what was normal in Canaan, they were called to be holy and devotion to God. To be the people they were meant to be requires being different from the world. Different. To be pure. Merciful. To be submitted to God. To demonstrate integrity. And listen, this, the importance of this truth, to be distinct and different from the world, that's not only important for Israel in the Old Testament. This is true for us today. It's for us today. While we are no longer under the legal aspect of these laws, the moral truths that they teach remain unchanged. And we too are called to be distinct, to be holy, to be different than the world and set apart to God. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. The Apostle Peter picks up this same language and applies it to the church today. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Listen, if you're a Christian today, if you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you've, you've responded to the call to die to self and follow Jesus, then that means that you are supposed to be different, different from the world. We are to be devoted to Christ. Romans 12 tells us that we're not to be conformed to the world. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. James 4 tells us that we're not supposed to be loyal to the world. He says that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. 1 John tells us we're not supposed to love the world or the things in the world because all that stuff is passing away. 
And if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Over and over again, the New Testament calls us to be distinct from the world, to be separate, not to love it, but instead to be conformed to the image of Christ. We are supposed to be different. Language that the New Testament uses often, a phrase that's found in many of the epistles is this, that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Listen to Philippians 1.27. Let your manner of life Be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Similarly, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, Paul says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is God's will for us today, that we be distinct from the world, that we be devoted to Christ, that we walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel, worthy of God, worthy of our calling. And if we look just like the world, if we think like them, act like them, we're failing to live up to our calling. We've forgotten what we're for what God has saved us for and called us to. Now, I want to make this clear. Being different from the world is not the front door of the kingdom of God. This is not how we somehow achieve salvation. Jesus is the door. So we come to him and we come through him to the Father. It's through faith in Christ that we are accepted and forgiven and granted eternal life. And it is therefore because we belong to him that we seek to be different. We know that he rescued us for a reason. He saved us so that we would serve him. And our calling is to reflect Christ in the world, to bear fruit that pleases him. So we seek to honor God, not so that he will accept us. Not so that we can sort of enter the kingdom. Rather, we're trying to be faithful to to do our job, to be who we're supposed to be, to live as ambassadors for Christ, to represent him well. So we don't seek to be different so that we will be accepted by God, but because we already have. If you don't know Christ today, I hope you can hear me clearly that I'm not calling you to somehow make yourself different. We're calling you to come to Christ and to allow him to change you to make you different, to, the biblical word is to sanctify you, to make you holy and set you apart unto himself. For those of us who have experienced this work of grace, if we claim to be those who have taken up our cross to follow Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, are we different than the world? Do you look different than the world? Do you fear God more than you fear the world? Or is it the crowd that influences you? Is it peer pressure? Do you love God more than you love the world? Or is it the things of the world, advancement, profit, reputation, career, stuff, money, whatever it may be? Is it the things in the world that motivate you? Or is it your love for God? Let me ask you, do you listen to God more than you listen to the world? We're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And listen, if you adhere to God's word, it's going to make you different. If you read and believe and obey this book, you will have a different sexual ethic than the world. You will have different reasons for bowing to authority. You will have different definitions of justice than what is often being talked about in our world right now. And you will have different motives for mercy. If you adhere to God's word, 
It will make you different. Ultimately, this has to do not just with what we look like on the outside, but what we are on the inside. If you don't look different than the world today, you probably need to ask yourself who you belong to. Do you belong to the world? Is that really where you're at home? Or do you belong to Christ? You have to choose because you can't have a foot in both camps. You can't love the world and God. You can't serve God and money. There's several sad examples in Scripture of people who had this choice before them and didn't make the right choice. Remember in Genesis 19 when God was rescuing Lot and his family from Sodom? Lot's wife looked over her shoulder as they were fleeing that city. As the city was being destroyed, she looked back because that was her home. That's where she wanted to be. Those were her values. That's what was important to her. And while God was calling her to freedom and inviting her to life and and rescuing her, she looked back because that's what she really wanted. Does that describe you? Jesus talked to a rich young man in Mark chapter 10, and he called him to follow him. And he said, I want you to, to sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And the man said no to Jesus. It says he went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. His heart was tethered to the things of the world. He loved his stuff more than he loved Christ. And so he said no to Jesus. In John chapter 12, Jesus is preaching and teaching, and it said that many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Some of you may be here this morning and you say, yes, I believe the gospel is true. I know that the Bible's true. I believe that God is my maker and he's ultimately my judge. But if I buy into all of that, it's gonna cost me. It's gonna cost me friendships. People are gonna think I'm strange. My life will become different And I'm not sure I'm okay with the consequences of that. You're right. It will become different, and there will be consequences. But today you have a choice before you, the glory of man or the glory of God. Only a fool, only a fool would say no to God and grasp onto something so fleeting and temporary as acceptance in this world, comfort in this world. We sang this morning, that the finish line is coming. Haste thee on to grace and glory, armed by faith and winged by prayer. Heaven's eternal days before thee. God's own hand will guide you there. Soon we'll close this earthly mission. Soon we'll pass. The the things that, that we're facing today and our hope will change to glad fruition, faith to sight, prayer to praise. Like that's what's happening Life is short. The world is passing away. To belong to God, to be devoted to him. This is not just some chore we have to do. This is the path to life. And it's a path to glory. So if you don't know Christ, I hope that you will come today to him and receive something better than what the world offers. And if you do know Christ, this is what he calls us to. 
He calls us to be different, to be wholly devoted to him. So Christian, let's embrace our calling today to be distinct and different from the world. Don't let the pleasures of the world entice you. Don't let worldly gain capture your heart. Don't fear what will happen if you choose to go against the flow and fully submit yourself to Christ. In Christ, we have more than the world could ever offer. And even if they don't understand, even if they mock us, even if they hate us, we know that it is worth it. So as recipients of God's eternal and perfect grace, let's receive our calling with joy and offer ourselves to worship and follow God, being fully devoted to him. Let's bow and pray. Father, I thank you that in your incredible grace and mercy that you would call sinners like us, that you would rescue us from our slavery to sin, You'd rescue us from spiritual darkness. You'd rescue us from death itself. And you would call us to to be this new people that belongs to you. Lord, you give us life through your son, Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. And you invite us to a new kind of life. I pray, Father, that those of us who know you would be faithful to live a life that is worthy of the calling you've given us. Lives that honor and please and glorify you. Lord, make this church drastically different than the world. I pray that we would stand out like light in the darkness, that we would be salt in a decaying world. Use us, Lord, for your glory. Help us to remember what we've been saved for. We've been saved to honor and glorify and praise you. Lord, it's easy for us to sort of compartmentalize our lives and to think that our Christianity is something that exists on Sunday and it affects maybe certain things we believe But Lord, I pray that you would help us to bring every aspect of our life, every element of life under the lordship of Christ, that we would be fully devoted to you in every way, that it would touch our thinking, our behavior, our values, our choices, causing us to be pure, to show mercy, to be fully submitted to you and demonstrate integrity in all aspects of life. Lord, increasingly bring us more and more into conformity with your son. And I pray for, again, any who may be among us who don't know you today. I pray that they would recognize the emptiness of the world. It offers nothing. Temporary pleasures that end in death. That's it. I pray that they would recognize the eternal glory that is being offered to them through Christ today. Open their eyes and draw them to yourself and save them. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.